Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Well, let's talk about Ezra slash Nehemiah. Now, in your Bibles, you have Ezra as one book and Nehemiah as another book, but traditionally, this was one big book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one big book. In the Middle Ages, it was divided into two books. And so, basically, what we're going to be looking at is the very last of Israel's history, um, basically up to the point where the um, Old Testament ends historically. Then there's four years of silence until, until the New Testament. Okay? So let me just give you some dates here, okay? Because all along, I haven't given you a lot of dates, but this is probably the, the most important date. Um, 586 B.C. was when Babylon marched into Jerusalem. They burned the temple. They burned the city. They broke down the wall, sending the people into 70 years of exile. You guys remember last week when we talked about Lamentations and Jeremiah? Come on in, guys. Uh, Lamentations and Jeremiah when they were taken into exile. That date was 586 B.C. Okay, so that's, that's the first important date. That's, that's basically when we can write up here on the board, Jerusalem is no more, okay? Yeah, I think this, this one may work. Let's see. Yeah, that's better. Jerusalem is no more. Okay, now in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, issues a decree allowing the Jews to return back to Israel. So how many years? Somebody are good at math. 586 to 538. What's that? How many years is that? Like 52? 48 years. So, so 48 years at this point. Okay, so let's turn to the book of Ezra. And let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Well, let's actually start back up in verse 1, Ezra 1.1, okay? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Okay, so... Cyrus is a pagan king, right? And God stirred in the heart of a pagan king to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple, okay? And so that first wave of of people in chapter 2, verse 2, under a guy named Zerubbabel, how would you like to have a name like Zerubbabel? They return under Zerubbabel's leadership, okay? So there's really three waves of exile return. They don't all just come back at once, okay? What's very interesting about this is that there's some, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem that decided not to return. They were happy in Babylon. They were okay there. They had planned their lives there. And so when the decree came to return to build the temple and to, to go back home to Jerusalem, some people said, I don't really want to go back home. Now, all along, what have we been talking about? It's the most important thing for these Israelites. The promised land being back in the land, having the temple, having their worship, having everything centered in Jerusalem. And so some people said, well, you know, we're comfortable here. We're not going to go back. But the first wave does return under Zerubbabel. Then the temple begins being rebuilt 
but not without opposition and setbacks, okay? So they start to rebuild the temple because remember the temple had been ransacked. It had been burned down. They go back and the first thing they say is we've got to rebuild God's house. I mean, how is this, how is, how can we worship and do the sacrificial system without the temple? So they begin to rebuild it. You can read about that in chapter four. After laying its foundation in 536 BC, it would actually take 16 years later. There was a 16 year gap where there was opposition, there was apathy. They said this is too much of a big thing to do. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah really inspired the people to finish building the temple. That's what those two books are, Haggai and Zechariah, of encouraging people that you need to get busy with rebuilding the temple. Okay, And then it was completed in 516 B.C., and there was a great celebration in Israel because the temple had been rebuilt. And, And then in the second wave... Okay, Ezra is really not quite on the scene yet. This is more Zerubbabel. But in Ezra chapter 7 through 10, you actually see the return to Jerusalem and Ezra's ministry there. Now, who's Ezra? Ezra is an interesting guy. He can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. Okay? One thing that's interesting about Ezra, what, what makes him an ultimate preacher? A lot of times pastors and preachers look at this thing about Ezra and this is how you should judge a pastor, okay? So this is how you should judge me as your pastor. Are you ready? Okay, so you're like, oh, what is, what, how, do we, how do we judge Pastor Sean? Well, let's look at Ezra 7, 9, and 10, okay? Ezra 7, 9, and 10. And I've got this starred and underlined and notes in the side of my Bible to help me remember this is my job as a pastor, as a preacher, Okay? Ezra 7, 9 and 10. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, let's look at four things there. What makes a good preacher based upon what Ezra's example is? Number one, he had a what? A heart to study God's Word. He had a passion to read the Word, to study the Word, to be in the Word, to do Bible study, to come to the meaning of the text, to spend arduous hours in studying the Word. That's what a good preacher does. Secondly, what does it say? Ezra had his heart to study the law and to do it. He had to personally obey it, live it. It's really, hard. It's really easy for me to get up and preach a message to you guys if I don't have to live it first. <laughs> but if I have to live it first and struggle with it first, um, it's a lot harder to preach, I think, at times. It's, don't you think it's easier to get up and tell somebody something that they need to do when maybe you're not doing it yourself? The hard part about preaching is having to come to grips with what the Bible says myself and then stand up and preach to you guys based upon my personal obedience to that. So you set your heart to study it, your personal obedience, and then what does it say? He has the ability to teach others. He to teach its statutes and rules in Jerusalem. So not only do you have a personal passion to study the Word, not only do you personally apply it to yourself, but you've got to be able to stand up and and teach and preach it. And then this is something that you really can't control, uh, the anointing or hand of God upon the preacher. It says the good hand of the Lord was on him. So God's hand was on his ministry. He He was an anointed preacher. And so when I think about, you know, a preacher... Those are four things that I I tend to think about personally and also that you guys should evaluate a preacher. Does he have a heart to study God's Word? Does he personally obey that Word? Can he teach it to others? And is God's anointing upon his life and his ministry?
Yes, Jeff. Just a little off topic. Sure. When you were talking about the temple, does the temple, when did it become, I mean, I know we went over this, but does it have to be rebuilt where it was originally built? And, you know, like in the future? Well, I know there's prophecy in, the, in Revelation and all that, but um, for the Jews, do they need to build it right where it was? Well, there's they different. Don't have the ark anymore, there's different views. Now or then? Okay. Because well, let me tell I you. Know, I know there's Christian view and then there's the Jewish view, but I was kind of just curious of both. I know that the Christian view is it'll be rebuilt. Well, actually, there's two. Actually, there's a view. I'll, I'll tell you what my view is. Um, my view is I don't see any scripture in the Bible that says that the temple physically is going to be rebuilt, because Jesus came as the temple. He's the fulfillment of all that, and so the temple system... Now, the dispensational view of end times would look at more literally and say the temple has to be rebuilt. It has to be in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which means that there's the Dome of the Rock there right now, and that's got to be removed and all this stuff. And then eventually, you know, and there's some people saying secretly right now they're moving stones in there to, to build it secretly behind people's backs, and it's being done underground, and they're raising red heifers and getting those ready to, to reinstitute the sacrifice, all that type of stuff. And so I guess to answer your question... Yes, there is a view out there that says that it has to be rebuilt in the same, pretty much the same spot where Herod's, there was David or Solomon's temple. Okay, that was destroyed. Then there's Zerubbabel's temple. And then actually when Herod came on the scene around the time of Jesus, he, re, he made the temple really, really big. And then in AD 70, that's when it was destroyed, when Rome came in. And so from AD 70 until today, there's been no temple in the sense that there's a sacrificial system. There is a priesthood. And so some people are looking forward to maybe during a thousand-year millennium, that'll be, depends on which end times that you have. But well, why haven't the Jews, I mean, do the Jews believe it has to be built there? Because, I mean, there's a lot of Orthodox. I mean, why haven't they built another temple in another place? I think it has to be on that temple mount. They want it right yeah, they want it right there because of because of the significance of where it, where it is. Does that, does that answer your yeah. question? Okay. No, yeah. yeah. That's fine. 485 B.C., Ezra led a second group of Jews back from exile and babalism, babalism, Babylon 80 years after the first return. Okay, so some 80 years later, it's a different generation now, coming back under Ezra. Now, the, the huge issue facing Israel this time around is nothing new. How will they remain distinct as God's people in the Persian Empire, okay, of false gods. Even though they were allowed to return and rebuild the temple, they're still not an independent state. They're still under Persian rule. And so how are they going to live as God's people with all these pagan deities around them? That's been the issue every week, isn't it? And Ezra is perplexed at how easily the Israelites were seduced into intermarriage. At the end of Ezra, in chapters 9... He gets really concerned that they're intermarrying, and he does something pretty shocking. At the very end of Ezra, he tells them to divorce all their wives. I'll let you just deal with that one, <laughs> because they were all pagan. And he said, just divorce them all. So Ezra, the whole book of Ezra is related to the rebuilding of the temple. Okay, I want to spend a little bit more time on Nehemiah, because... The book of Nehemiah shows us an ordinary man. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a preacher. 
He wasn't a judge. He wasn't a king. He was a cupbearer. He was an ordinary guy that God did an extraordinary thing through. So here's the issue with Nehemiah. The temple has been rebuilt, but the walls lay ruined and the people are in distress. So let's turn to Nehemiah. And um, let's look at chapter 1, verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so temple rebuilt, but the wall is just important to fortify the city. The wall's in shambles, the wall's broken down, so the people are distressed that they are living in Jerusalem, but it's still not the way it's supposed to be. you got the temple in the middle, but around the city, which is the, the, fa- the famous wall around Jerusalem, it was broken down, it was lying in ruins, it was burned down, it was, a, it was, it was in rubble, and the people were distressed about it. Okay? And so word comes back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is actually not in Jerusalem yet. He is in um, Susa, which is the capital of Persia. Okay, so what does Nehemiah do first with the crisis? What do you think Nehemiah does first? When he hears that the wall is broken down, what do you think he does? Let's look at budgets. Let's look at building. Let's get a committee together. Let's decide on, let's get some frantic activity. Let's try to figure out what we can do. What's the first thing he does? He prays and he fasts. Let's look at verse, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I know that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And if you go down to verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So what's the first thing? One of the things that you should, one of the things I've done, and you can look at my Bible. By the way, this is not the Bible I preach out of. This is my quiet time Bible. This is the ESV journaling Bible. I don't know. If, do, they, do you guys carry this at the Bible Lighthouse? Um, but it's got like notebook stuff on the side of it. And so you can see, like I'm not going to show you my notes, but one thing that I did when I did a study of Nehemiah is how many times he prays. He is a man of, if there's a man of prayer, every time there's a decision to be made, every time there's opposition, every time there's something going on, Nehemiah stops and he prays. He's a praying man. So the very first thing he does before anything is he pray, he's fasting in prayer. He goes before the Lord. Um, and then he returns to Jerusalem, okay, in 445 B.C. And what he does is he casts his God-given vision before the king. Okay, so he's the cupbearer to the king. And he asks God, he says, God, give me favor in the sight of this king. I'm going to go back, and, and I don't know how the king's going to respond because I'm going to ask the king very specifically, can we... Go back to Jerusalem, and do, can we have resources to rebuild the wall? So after prayer and fasting, he goes before the king, and he casts this vision. So let's, let's go into chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, you didn't know there was a card you know, back in the Old Testament. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so Artaxerxes is the king, 
When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? What does it say next? So I prayed to the God of heaven. We don't hear his prayer, but what's the next word he said? And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So think of that in the moment there. Nehemiah is nervous. The king says, What do you want? And what does he stop and do? Before he answers, he prays under his breath. And then he asks the king, can we go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall? Okay? And the king says, sure. As a matter of fact, I'm not just going to send you back empty-handed. Why don't you go back and go to the king's forest and get timber and take it back with you? So he even got more than what he requested. The king was like, sure. And by the way, stop by the, my, um, my construction yard. Stop by my lumber yard and go out and talk to the foreman and get yourself some semis and take back, you know, a bunch of lumber for, for the building of this. But before Nehemiah, Nehemiah is not just going to walk back into Jerusalem and say, okay, here I am. I've been away all these years. Let's start building. What does he do? In chapter 2, 11 through 16, he engages in research. Okay. If you're going to rebuild the wall, what does he do? He, he looks at the cost and the crisis. How much time, how much energy, how much money, how much emotional involvement is this going to require? So before he shares his vision with anybody, he does a risk assessment. He does some planning. Okay? Now, a lot of people look at Nehemiah as a great book on leadership, and I think it is. So let's just talk about leadership here. What's one of the first principles of leadership that you see from Nehemiah? Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a preacher, or you're just a person in the pew, what's the first principle you've seen in leadership there? A leader prays, spends time in prayer and fasting, seeking the face of the Lord. Number two, at some point you've got to act upon that and take a risk. He did that with the king. But what does another good leader do? A leader engages in what? Research, time, investment, cost analysis, money, how much emotional involvement. If I'm going to cast this vision to the nation, I need to know exactly how much it's going to cost. And, and not just money. Isn't there an emotional cost to this? Are people going to buy into this? So he goes and he, he looks at the, at the situation. And then in 17 through 20, he, he doesn't share his vision with everybody yet. He doesn't just stand, he doesn't go on the street corner and get all Israel there and say, here's my vision. Who does he share it with? Key leadership. He shares it with the key leadership first because, think about this, okay? There are some ideas that I've had as pastor that I could go to the whole church and say, here's what we're doing. And people be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, Sean. Why did you want to do that? So what do I do? I go to my elders and say, what do you guys think about this? Uh, I don't think you, yeah, I think that's probably the stupidest I've ever seen, Sean. I don't think you should do that. So, okay, good. I'm, okay, I, I got wise counsel. I'll talk to people I know. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Or they say, you know, that's a great idea. Let's go for it. And so sometimes you want to float an idea out there to people that, that are in key leadership before you give it to the whole group just to see if there's buy-in. And that's what Nehemiah does. So let's look at verses 17 through uh, 20 where he shares this vision with the key leadership. Uh, verse 17, Then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that he had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So how do they respond to, um, how do they respond to his leadership? They say, Okay, you've done a cost assessment, you've gotten materials from the king, you've, you've done your research, you've cast the vision, we're going to rebuild the wall, I've shared it with key leadership, the hand of the Lord's been upon me, this is a God-given vision, what do they say? Let's do it, let's get on board. Notice the next word in verse 19, what does your, your Bible say? But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When you cast a vision, a God-given vision, and when you feel like it's what God wants you to do and the leadership's on board and you move forward and it's a big task, what should you expect? Opposition whether it's satanic opposition or people opposition, anytime God wants to do something big, there's always going to be the naysayers there. And you've got Tobiah and um, Sanballat that basically oppose Nehemiah at every turn. At one point, they almost threatened his life. So you've got these guys that are opposing. Now, remember these guys because they're pagans, okay? They're not even, and, and Nehemiah says, you have no part in this. We are God's people. This is Jerusalem. You're a Girgashite or what is it? You're a Horonite and you're an Ammonite. You're one of those ites, but you're not an Israelite. So you have no part in this. Okay? In chapter 3, basically, why does Nehemiah list? Like, if you look at number 3, or chapter 3, you've got, okay, you've got these people were by the sheep gate, and these people were by the fish gate, and these people were by the, by the valley gate, and these people were by the dung gate, and these people were by the fountain gate, and he lists all these people by their certain gate and their walls. Why in the world did Nehemiah list the names of the workers in their specific area? Okay, he saw the big picture and realized that if you looked at all these gates around the wall, so think about these gates. What do you think would strategically make sense to have people work on certain areas of the wall? Tribes and neighborhoods. So if you lived in this neighborhood or this tribe right here, that would be your responsibility. That would be your responsibility. It wouldn't make sense for you to go all the way over there. And so Nehemiah had the big picture and said, if we're going to get this done, it makes sense that those that are the closest that have ownership, you're going to build where you have ownership, your area. And so that's chapter 3 is listing all these people. And so if you're going to cast a vision and people are going to have to work and it's a huge God-given task, there's got to be ownership. People have got to, got to catch the vision. Okay, in chapter 4, we see opposition. But what do they continue to do? They continue to pray. All through this, they're praying. They're asking God to help them. Nehemiah is being a leader. And by the way, Nehemiah is not a pastor. Nehemiah is not a prophet. Nehemiah is not a king. What is he? He's a cupbearer. But yet, he's a very influential man because the people listened to him and they, they caught his vision. So in chapter 4, we see opposition, but they continue to pray. God frustrates the plan of their enemies and the leaders are behind Nehemiah as a leader. In chapter 5, Nehemiah is concerned with the oppression of the poor. 
He calls for social reforms. He's like, okay, we're building this wall, and as I've gone around Jerusalem and seeing what's going on, there's a lot of oppression of the poor. We've got to have some social reforms here. We've got to make sure that people aren't being exploited, and so he addresses that. In chapter 6, there's more opposition, but the wall is finally complete in 437 B.C. Okay, here's the interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah. The, the wall is completed halfway through the book. Wouldn't you think the story ends with the wall being built? Why have all these chapters afterwards? There's a purpose to have these chapters afterwards. The question is, okay, now that we have our temple and now that we have our wall, those physical things are built. How are we actually going to be spiritually built? How are we going to survive as a people? Now that we've got our physical structures in place, how do we survive spiritually as God's people? Okay, and so in chapter 7, we see the final wave of exiles coming back from Babylon. So three waves of people. This was the final wave of people. They finally came back, that last group. Now, authentic revival. If you want to study revival, read chapters 8 through 10. We're going to look at a little bit of this and see what authentic revival looks like. So if you want to see revival coming to a nation, this is it right here. Okay, Ezra comes back on the scene. Okay. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra was a preacher. And so here's what happens. Look at chapter 8. The desire for the Bible to be read came from the people. It wasn't like Ezra marched in with his Bible and said, Okay, everybody, turn in your Bibles to 1 Moses. or what, I mean, whatever. I mean, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Notice what it says. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of law of Moses, and the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the people came and said, Ezra, you come out and preach to us. So what does Ezra do? He comes out and he preaches the book of the law. How long? From midday, or from morning to, to midday. Everybody stood for a four to five hour sermon. Everybody. And he read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what does it say? As he was reading out loud, how were the people? They were attentive. That's what happens during revival. People want to hear the word. They're hungry for the word. They can't get enough of the word. The word is central to everything that happens. They want to come, and they don't care if the service is four or five hours. They just want to get the word. Now, you know, you've been to some, you hear these people that go on mission trips, and they go to like places like Russia or closed countries where they haven't had the Bible, and, and their worship services are five or six hours because, you know, there's the first sermon, and they're like, that was a long sermon. And the next guy gets up and preaches, and you know, they're at church all day, four or five sermons, preaching an hour, and the people are excited. And then in America, you know, we start looking at our watch. If the guy goes over, you know, he starts getting at 40 minutes, we start getting anxious because we want to, you know, we want to beat the Breans down to Village Inn. So, you know, we, we got we to gotta, we gotta start, uh, start moving here. But... In revival, the, 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 the word is central. And notice he stands up on a platform and reads it. Okay, um, look at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So he opens the law. The people stand in honor of the Bible being read. 
Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then he lists a bunch of these Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akbut, all these people, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and gave the sense so the people could understand the reading. Okay, here's the issue. These people probably don't speak Hebrew. Where have they been all this time? They've been in Babylon. And so when Ezra reads, he's probably reading in Hebrew. What do the Levites do? They go around into small groups, like small group Bible study. It's almost like the pastor preaches, and then the Levites go into small group Bible study and unpack what the pastor says and make it make sense. So we have that model, don't we? You got one big guy preaching on Sunday morning, and then you got small groups where you can digest and understand what the Bible says. So you see small group Bible study and, and, and preaching right there. And so it's interesting that these Levites go around and help the people understand what's being said. They were cut to the quick. They mourned over their sin. Look at verse um, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So what's true revival? There's contrition, there's repentance, there's brokenness, there's an eager desire to to hear the word being preached, to devour the word, and then when the word comes, you're cut to the quick, it penetrates your soul, you mourn over your sin, and then they celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is interesting. Nehemiah says, okay, there's a time to mourn, but it's not yet. What I want you to do is to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So go, and the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And so go celebrate the Feast of Booths. And that was to remind them of living in the wilderness. And so they have this long festival for about a week long where they celebrate and they eat and they drink. And then at the end of that, they go into what's called a solemn assembly. Kind of an interesting way of doing things. It's kind of like, okay, you got a taste of remorse. You got a taste of repentance. But we're really going to be serious about this. Go enjoy, you know, take seven days and go celebrate and and let the joy of the Lord be your strength rejoice. But then we're going to come back and we are going to have a solemn assembly. And when we call a solemn assembly, we mean it. We are calling everybody back together. The book of the law has been read. You've mourned. Okay, now we've got to do something about it. So they have a solemn assembly. In chapter 9, chapter 9 is the solemn assembly. Look at verse 1. Well, actually... um, Let's go back to chapter 8, verse 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So what are they doing? A solemn assembly means they come together and what are they doing? They're reading the scriptures again. They're confessing sin and they're worshiping. And chapter 9, 6 through 37 is one long recorded prayer of the people. You you see a recorded prayer here. And, And what is their prayer? 
If this is a solemn assembly, they've been cut to the quick, they realize they've been sinners, what do they actually pray? And I think it's very important when we look at the, the scriptures, when we see recorded prayers, you often wonder, well, how should we pray as Christians? Well, look at recorded prayers in the Bible and use that as a model. And here you've got this recorded prayer. And I, and I put some things up here that kind of shows how it begins. It begins with God's sovereignty and power. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. Okay, so it starts with God's sovereignty and power. You're God. You're awesome. You're powerful. You're the creator of the heavens of the earth, the ends of the heavens and the earth. If you look at a lot of prayers in the Bible, that's how most prayers start. Oh, sovereign Lord creator of the heavens and the earth. You are God. You are powerful. That's how most prayers start. And then he moves to God's faithfulness. He talks about how you chose, I'm not going to read all this, but talks about how you chose Abraham and you've kept your promise. You are righteous. When we were in Egypt, you delivered us out of Egypt. So he he begins to go through God's faithfulness in their history. And then in verse 16, notice what he does. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Does that sound familiar to you? We've seen that over and over again. The Lord is faithful. A statement of God's hesed. You are faithful. And then there's a plea from this current generation, O Lord, please don't abandon us. You are gracious. Um, Look down at verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for we have dealt faithfully. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. So they confess their sins. They talk about God's sovereignty. They talk about God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's love. They say, God, we have sinned. Would you please bless us? Would you, we, we are repenting. We are repenting of our evil. We're repenting of our parents' evil. The whole reason we're in, what was the whole reason they were in exile? Because they were wicked. Remember last week how many times in Jeremiah he said to them, you would not repent, you would not repent, you stiffened your neck, you were stubborn, you go into exile, and they're saying, okay, our parents, our grandparents were stubborn, they were stiff-necked, we're stubborn and stiff-necked, we're repenting God, we're coming clean. And then in 938, they have what's called a covenant renewal ceremony. Look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they say, okay, we're serious about this. We are going to sign our names on a covenant saying that we will, from this day forward, live in covenant relationship with God. We will be obedient. We'll be like that nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses came down with the law and said, here's the law, and they said, we will do it. They renew the covenant. In chapter 10, 28, and 29... Here's what they say. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath 
to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, so what do they say? The specific obligations are we are going to obey Moses' law. And the one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to intermarry. We are not going to intermarry with Gentiles. because Not because you know, God is racist against Gentiles, but Israel is to be a holy nation. They were to marry only Israelites. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen in, in Nehemiah? <laughs> you, think that, you think it's going to go good? Okay. Now that the walls have been rebuilt and they've entered into a covenant renewal ceremony with God, how will they actually live as God's people now that they are no longer in exile and back in Jerusalem? Chapter 13, Nehemiah's final reforms. Here's the scary thing about how it ends. Remember who Sanballat was and Tobiah? Those guys are, Nehemiah leaves and goes back. To, to Susa. So he's gone from Jerusalem. And guess what the people say? Ne- Nehemiah's gone, so let's, um, let's, have, let's party hardy. <laughs> and so a, a pagan was living in the temple, had his own house in the temple, and Sanballat and Tobiah were actually in leadership, the guys that were opposing the building of the wall. And their, their, their sons and daughters were intermarrying. And so what does Nehemiah do? He comes back and literally kicks butt, literally. He takes these guys out, pulls their beers, and beats them up in the middle of the street. You want to read it? Yeah, let's read it. I want to see a guy getting beaten up. Okay, let me see if I can. Um, yeah, what's going on is these merchants are coming, and they're hiding out outside the walls because the people at night would sneak out and go do business with the pagans. And Nehemiah finds out about this. So look at chapter 13, verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Okay? Because they were, they were trying to do work on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Literally. I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. They must have been pretty scared of Nehemiah. He must have been a big kind of guy. If he threatened him and said, I'm going to beat you up, they didn't, they didn't respond. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. That's important. If they can't speak the language of Judah, that means they can't understand what? The Bible, the law. Okay, they made this covenant renewal ceremony that they would not intermarry. And so notice what he said. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Now, when it says he cursed them, it doesn't mean he, like, cussed at them. It means he invoked damnation upon them and went out and kicked butt and said, I'm, and that's how Nehemiah ends, okay? So the, the very end of the Bible ends with disobedience, intermarriage, idolatry, 
even though they're back in the land and they've got the wall built and they've got the temple built, why were they kicked out in the first place? Idolatry, intermarriage, have they learned? And so God says, cutting it off. 400 years of silence, you're on your own. So let's go look at, in the last 15 or 20 minutes or so, I want us to look at some key insights from the Minor Prophets, okay? So we're not going to have time to go through every book of the Minor Prophets, but what I've done is I've, I've chosen some key quotes from the Minor Prophets that you may want to underline in your Bible. These are just, um, so let's go to Joel. You might have to get a concordance, or not a concordance, but your index. Table of contents is what I mean. So I've taken some kind of famous quotes from the Minor Prophets. So let's look at Joel uh, 2, 12 through 13. And I'm not probably going to spend a lot of time explaining these. I'm just going to kind of show you where these are. And, and most of these are pretty much self-explanatory, but they're just kind of highlights of the books we're not going to get to. Okay, does that make sense? Because we can't view every one of these little books. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Sounds like nobody's not quite there yet. It's on page 761 in my Bible. So, Is it on yours too? Okay, it is. 761, so... I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Now, you guys should know a Hebrew word right now. What is the word return? Shuv. Okay. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. So tear out your heart, not your clothes. Because remember, tearing your clothes was a sign of, um, of a mourning. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, and he relents over disaster. Have we seen that over and over again? The very thing that God is known for all throughout the Old Testament is merciful, gracious, steadfast love, um, forgiving. He relents over disaster. But what's the condition there? You must return. You must repent. Okay? Joel. All right, let's go to Jonah. Jonah, Jonah. Oh, go to Nineveh. All right, here we go. That was an old youth group song we sang. Jonah 3, well, all of chapter 3. I, I, could, I preached a sermon series on Jonah, and that was fun. There's, there's four little chapters, but um, we know the story of Jonah, right? First time God says, go to Nineveh, he says, no, I don't want to go. He hides out and gets swallowed by a whale and gets vomited up on land and gets the point across, and he goes into Nineveh a second time, and this is where Jonah, we pick up on Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into all the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his message. Eight words in the Hebrew language, you are toast. That's basically what he said. The least seeker-sensitive message you can think of. You're all going to hell. You've got forty days to repent or you will be overthrown. Now, how do you think the culture would have responded? Who's this crazy man coming in here and telling us how to live? What does he think he is? Look what happens. They called, and the people of Nineveh believed God. These are pagans. These are violent pagans. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And you go on and read that the king pronounces a fast, and there's this major revival where a whole pagan city gets saved. Jonah's the very first time that a prophet leaves Israel to go to a pagan land, 
and the pagan people believe. And remember Jeremiah last week? He goes to his own people and they don't believe. Now, how does, Jer- how does Jonah respond when, when there's revival, when there's repentance, when there's salvation? He gets mad. Why does he get mad? He wants them to die because they are pagan, but he gets mad over God's character. Now, look at chapter 4. What have we been looking at so far? Abounding in steadfast love. God's he-, he gets mad because he knows God's a God of Hesed. Here we go, chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Okay, that's a, that's a, in the Hebrew, it fired up Jonah so bad that he got fired up. I mean, it's a really strong way in the Hebrew of saying he got really, really upset. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I want to commit suicide because you've saved these people because I knew, I knew, God, if I was going to go preach the gospel to them, you're such a gracious and faithful God that if they repented, you would save them, and that ticks me off. And that's how Jonah ends. He goes out and he cries, and then he waits. He goes outside the city and waits for Sodom and Gomorrah, and it doesn't happen. And so he's out there pouting, waiting for the fire to come down, and God appoints a tree to cover him up. And he's like, oh, great. I love this tree. This tree is beautiful. And then God appoints a worm. And the worm eats the tree. And Jonah gets mad. He's like, that tree, my tree. I lost my tree. And God says, you care more about a stupid tree than you care about a city full of people that need to know me. And that's how Jonah ends. Listen to the last words of God. It ends on a cliff note. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and it also as much cattle. So it ends with kind of a cliffhanger. We don't know how Jonah responded, but God is basically saying, I love to save sinners because I'm a God of said, and if people repent, there will be salvation. Okay, let's turn to Micah. Next book. Micah 5, 2 through 5. Just in case you wondered what like some Christmas prophecies are about Jesus from the Old Testament. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. What does that tell us about Jesus? He has, he's eternal son of God coming in the flesh. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Mary, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their what? Peace. He's the prince of peace. So that's a prophecy directly about out of Bethlehem will come Jesus, who will be a ruler, who will rule in peace. I don't know how more clear you can get than an Old Testament prophecy there. Okay, let's look at uh, Micah seven eighteen through 20. Again, another verse about God's grace, grace and, and mercy. Verse 18, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. 
as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So God's what? Going to take our sin and cast it to the bottom of the ocean. He's a God that's merciful and gracious. All right, let's look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk, as some people call it. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. I'm not going to go into the whole background of Habakkuk, but I want to just um, read to you a couple verses here. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Sometimes we just need to be silent in the presence of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then you go down to the very last verse there in 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So if everything in your life is going bad and everything's being destroyed and you're losing everything, we'll still rejoice in the Lord who saves us. Okay, Zephaniah. This is a really cool passage. This is the only time in the Bible it's said that God does something. We're called to do this all the time to God. This is the first time it ever says God does this to us. Okay? Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's the only time it ever says in the Bible that God sings, and He sings over us. Now, we're called to sing to God, but this is a, a verse saying God's going to quiet us with His love. He's going to sing over us. His fatherly care is going to come to us in a beautiful song. It's kind of a cool imagery. Okay, Zechariah 3. This is a picture of, um, this is Joshua the high priest, not Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is a different Joshua. Okay, Joshua is the high priest. This is a picture of spiritual warfare as well as a picture of justification by faith alone from an Old Testament vantage point. Okay, so let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, that means accuser, standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquities away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And if you go on down there, you look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Who's the branch? Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So what's the picture here? Joshua, the high priest, is dressed in filthy clothes. And Satan comes and says, you have no business being in the presence of God. You're filthy, you're dirty, you're unclean, you're unrighteous. 
Now, in a sense, is that correct? Yes. But what does God say to do to Joshua? Take off his clothes and clothe him with new clothes. Then he will be able to stand in my presence. So what happens when we become a Christian? The Bible says our old self has been put off. We've been given a new self. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we can stand accepted in God's presence. And when Satan comes to accuse us, he has no ground. He has no, he has no case. He can't accuse us because we're not filthy. When God looks at us now, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ. And based upon that, Satan has no ground to accuse us. Remember the song we sing, um, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What's the next line? It's one of the songs we sing on Sunday morning. But when Satan tempts me, upward I look to Jesus who made an end to all my sin. And, and he, he's satisfied to save me because of, of, of the cross. And so there's just a picture there of kind of spiritual warfare and, and justification by faith alone. Okay, Malachi, the Italian prophet, actually Malachi. <laughs> Let's go eat at Malachi's. Um, Malachi, although, although Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, it's not the last historically. Nehemiah is the last historically. Okay, so that's really historically how it ends. But there's a period here um, historically, it's really before Ezra and Nehemiah. It's about 40 years after the temple's rebuilt. But what Malachi shows is the tragic ending of the nation of Israel. Look at some of the things that happened there. In chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, am not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Okay, so God's saying, okay, you're back in the land. And if you look at the whole book of Malachi, they're bringing dirty sacrifices. They're committing a, um, there's rampant divorce. There's, there's robbery. There's thievery. There's just, you know, huge sin in the land. And God basically takes the nation on trial. And it's almost like this trial scene where God asks some questions as a, as a prosecuting attorney and they respond with their defense. And then God answers back. Um, but, they, but God says, you've got a chance to repent. Return to me and I will return to you. Now let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The very, these are the very last words of the, of the Old Testament, okay? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will neither leave them root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. What's the, one of the last statements in the Old Testament? Remember the word. How did Genesis start? God spoke the word and the world was created. God gave his word to Adam and Eve. God gave his word to Abraham. God gave his word to Moses. God gave his word to the prophets. And the very last word here says, remember the word, the law of my servant Moses. And then verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, Elijah's already lived, right? Elijah went back up in a whirlwind. So according to Jewish tradition, some people thought Elijah would come back. Since he didn't really die, he was translated up. Elijah would come back, and he would be the precursor to the Messiah. Okay, there's 400 years of silence, but there's a promise of a prophet. So turn to Luke chapter 1. How do you think the New Testament's going to begin? If the very last words of the Old Testament are, Elijah's coming, how do you think the New Testament's going to start? Elijah is coming, but who's Elijah? Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, this is Zechariah. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's cool. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Almost verbatim how Malachi ends, right? Elijah is going to come and turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. Zechariah is told by the angel, you're going to bear a son, John the Baptist. He's going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to do that. Now turn to Mark, just back one book, Mark 1, 2 through 8. Every gospel has John the Baptist in it, preparing the way of the Lord. But Mark's is pretty, this is just how Mark starts. Mark doesn't have a Christmas story. Mark actually starts with John the Baptist. So let's look at Mark, verse 1, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appearing baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now go down to verse 14. What's the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry? Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there you have it. 14 weeks of Old Testament studies. It ends with Elijah being promised, 400 years of silence. And so John the Baptist is a hinge. 
Okay, really, John the Baptist can be considered an Old Testament prophet because he's not really during the times of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament pointed to him, but he's not Jesus. And so think about a hinge that swings the door. He swings the Old Testament to the New Testament in preparation for Jesus. And so he's got a great ministry. And so that's how, I think that's the last slide, isn't it? Yep. So there you have it. A lot to digest. And we will meet back in the fall with the New Testament. And you can take your notes and have fun this summer digesting. I encourage you to go back and maybe just read the Old Testament again. And this time, you know, if you have the Bible reading plan where you read through the Bible and maybe take a little bit of time and just, or maybe just pick a long book and go just read it and, and digest it. So, well, let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for this journey. It's been a fun, a fun journey to see how it starts with your word creating and ends with the promise of your living word Jesus coming and all in between we are pointed to Christ in types and shadows the ark of the covenant Passover the temple the sacrificial system the prophets the priests and the kings and all the characters we've looked at Lord and help us to always remember that Lord you are the you are the the the, uh, the main character You're the primary actor in these stories. And Lord, help us to worship you, to love you, to adore you, and through this study of the Old Testament to gain a greater appreciation for your plan of redemption that started in eternity past and unfolded through the nation of Israel and has been completed in Christ and now is being proclaimed throughout the entire world, Lord. Even as in a few weeks we're going to India to proclaim this gospel and tell people to repent and believe the gospel because Jesus has come and died and rose again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.